1: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hello and welcome to Unheard, I'm Florence Reid. Since 2016, euthanasia has been legal in Canada, and next year the right to request assisted suicide is due to be extended to mental health as well as physical health conditions. In June 2019, 61-year-old Alan Nichols was taken to hospital in Chilliwack, Canada. Within a month, he had requested euthanasia and died by lethal injection. His brother, Gary Nichols, is here to tell us about it. Gary, it's good to meet you.
1: Yeah, hi there, Flo. I'm glad you're telling Alan's story. Uh, It needs to be told, uh, just to make people aware of some of the problems, really, with uh, medical-assisted dying. There's a lot of cases maybe where it's it's a good thing, you know. There's no need to watch somebody suffer, but uh, if it's going to be loosely and sloppily applied, it's a, a terrible position for a family to be in.
2: And this was the position that you found yourself in um, with your wife, Trish, and your other brother, Wayne, as well. Could you just tell me a little bit about the situation before Alan was hospitalised? What what was his life like before that time?
1: It was... It was uh... A challenging life. When he was a a young boy at 12 and 13, he was uh, diagnosed with a a brain tumor, a benign tumor. So the surgeons uh, proceeded with surgery to remove the tumor. Unfortunately, it grew back. So they went in and surgically removed a deeper cut of the tumor, which unfortunately had to remove part of his brain which affected mostly his right side. So his right side was quite physically, uh, at, at, not at first impaired, as well as his hearing. Um, as his life went on, he actually lived a fairly normal life. I think he had mentally mental challenges on the way uh, as, as his hearing started to diminish and he noticed his right side. I mean, there's a lot of things he couldn't do now, like play hockey or maybe run but he could walk and do function quite normal.
2: It was perhaps complicated, but it was still uh, a life worth living. You wouldn't say that this was uh, someone who was completely incapacitated or at the end of their life in the way that you might think of a euthanasia patient being.
1: Oh, most definitely. I mean, when you think that his surgeries were when he was 12 and 13, he managed to complete school, high school. And, worked as a work had a working career
2: forgive me for asking this but in the years prior to his hospitalization had had there been a, a decline in his health or was that more complicated
1: i would say there was a, a slow diminish that kind of uh, kind of went you know up and down there were times where he probably didn't want to live like he just because he would like to be normal again like how he was before the surgeries and uh so he would go through stages where life was good and then he'd hit a stage like maybe for a while, for a month or two, where he didn't f- feel like living.
2: It would be fair to say that this came in ebbs and flows. It wasn't simply a downhill trajectory at the, at the time when he was hospitalised.
1: Most definitely. As a matter of fact, um, from 2017 to 2019, up to the time where he was actually taken to the hospital, unwillingly, by the way, it wasn't something that he drove himself or got transported to the hospital. He was actually apprehended by the police and physically put into the ambulance to the hospital. Um, he, he was actually doing really well. He had a really good stretch there for two years. Like He was doing really good. He was being tra- treated for absolutely nothing. No illness.
2: So let's go to that day then in, in 2019. What actually happened? Were, were you in contact with him when he was hospitalized? Or how did you find out?
1: I actually, uh, I got phoned by my brother, but uh, I actually headed from Edmonton to to the Chilowoc Hospital that same day. And I'll just give you a little bit of introduction, what's going up to them, because as somebody with, let's say, psychiatric issues, which is easy to understand after you've had uh, brain surgery, there's brain trauma, or he did have the odd couple seizures and things like that. So he did have, you know, uh, complications mentally from... All of his history of medical conditions um and things would really bother him like changes so leading up to um june 16 the day he was taken to the hospital he was aware that my brother who was the main contact because he was in the area he would go to Alan's place once a week take him out shopping take him to do his banking well my brother had informed him over the last year Leading up to this, that he would be going away, he wanted to go across Canada. So that kind of angered him a little bit because he he liked the routine, right? Well, he wouldn't accept uh, friends coming to transport him to do his running around. He wouldn't take an am or not ambulance, uh, a taxi, or any other uh, assistance. So I was going to have to fly out from Edmonton to Chilliwack. Take him out, do his shopping, do his banking, et cetera, and then come back home. So that angered him a bit just because there was a change. He had a problem with the bank. He went to pay his property taxes. They said, Alan, you're a B.C. resident. You can't apply for the uh, homeowner's grant here. You have to go to the Chihuahua Municipal uh, Hall. He says, well, I've always been coming here to the bank. Well, we're not allowed to do it anymore. And he got really upset and he had to be escorted out of the bank just because that was another change. Safeway, where he liked to do his shopping was closing down to do renovations to turn it into a, uh, an alternative Safeway store. And uh, his neighbor, Sharon, who was kind of our, uh, she assisted us quite quite a bit because she was his neighbor. She would let us know if there's anything that looked unusual over Alan's place. Well, she was moving from Chilwock to Cranbrook. And that was one of the neighbors or at least co- acquaintance or that Alan actually light
2: so he'd lost a lot of this local network it seems almost like the perfect storm for a mental health crisis if you're already vulnerable
1: very very much so i mean this is somebody who when you go inside your door locks the door um all his furniture a lot of it has been removed because he didn't want people coming over uh yeah so you're exactly right and then he gets that train of thought and he's upset with everybody now so i was coming out there that day he was transported to the hospital, so I went to see him in the emergency room. And right away, he looked at me. He looked like surprised. like, "What are you doing here?" kind of thing. And he says, he says to me, "If you're not here to bust me out, you might as well leave."
2: What do you think he, he meant by that? He didn't want to be there.
1: He didn't want to be there. Most definitely, he want, he liked to do things his own way. He didn't want to come there.
2: And you said he'd been taken against his will. What does that actually mean in terms of? was he picked up by a mental health specialist was it an ambulance what had actually happened
1: um the neighbor like i said her name was sharon called my brother and says i hadn't seen alan for the last couple of days i'm a little bit concerned and of course my brother was aware of the couple of weeks leading up to this date of the problems with alan with the changes right that i just mentioned and um she says well should i call the police just to have a check on him and my brother said sure so the police went over to check on him of course he wouldn't open the door so they called the locksmith or no they, actually sharon had a key i'm sorry so sharon opened the door and let the police in well they didn't like what they seen they said you could see that maybe he was uh, abusing himself by not um, drinking enough fluids not eating properly they just thought he had suicide thoughts
2: but th- this wasn't a, h- a health scare in the sense that it was not a flare-up of his other health conditions this was a, a, a case of mental health.
1: Exactly and so they called the ambulance and the police according to Sharon had to, Alan was fighting not to go into the ambulance they were pinning basically pinning his arms and legs to force him in there so from that point they transferred him to the Chihuahua General Hospital they admitted him under the mental health act. So they're, it's, they're quite aware there's some mental issues here. And, and there he is, he's admitted to the hospital. And then so I, that's the day I go to see him in the emergency. And uh, I said, Oh, well, I can't bust you out of here. I think you're in the right place. You, need, you know, they need to look at you. They need to get you back on track.
2: So at that, at that point you had trust for these doctors and nurses who were taking care of him to get him back on his feet and then get him back home, I assume.
1: Yeah, that's what the hospital is supposed to be for. You don't. Th- I, I, I. I'm going to be telling the truth of the matter. I didn't. Wasn't even aware of uh, um, made at that time medical assistant dying. I, I didn't even you know existed in Canada. And then even my ignorance, I wasn't even too sure when they legalized even suicide or anything like that. In so you'd,
2: you'd never known anyone who had taken their own life through this process. No, nope, no. Nope. And, and you and- had, and they didn't notify you of that possibility when you went to visit him in the hospital
1: nothing like that at all and unfortunately at that time now because I left and came back the next day with my brother Alan was mad at me now for not taking him out of the hospital so he didn't want to see anybody so it doesn't sound
2: like he was in his right state of mind
1: he wasn't in his right state no and when he got upset or angered he, he took it out on of course the people that support him and Love him really. Um, they transfer transferred him from the emergency ward that night to the psychiatric ward, right? So we went to see him, but he wouldn't want to. See, he didn't want to see anybody now. He's mad at everybody. And so, but my brother, of course, he was leaving in a couple of days to go across Canada. So I stuck around for a couple more days, and I went to see the um, coordinator of the psychiatric ward, and I went to see the administration of the hospital. I said. I have to go back to Edmonton in a couple of days, but please keep me up to date. Up to date. Well, we don't find out all the information, like even how Ellen put up a fight to go in the hospital like that. I wasn't even aware of that the night that I went to see him. And if I would have known that, I probably would have taken him out of the hospital, but I didn't find that out from Sharon till much time later.
2: That's what it sounds like to me at this point is you've got someone incredibly vulnerable, in the most obvious sense, in hospital and then yourself and your brother who have acted even informally as kind of custodians of this person in many ways, looking after him, taking him to do his banking and his shopping and things that he might have found kind of overwhelming in everyday life and you are not being consulted now on his hospitalisation and eventually the decision that he was, he was going to make or even the potential of it happening I mean what, what were you thinking at that point? Did you, did you want more involvement in his care?
1: Well, well, most definitely, we want to be informed what's going on. And every time I, I would call the hospital, and say, oh, he's doing fine. He's OK. Yeah, yeah. he's, he's eating, all sorts of things. You, you think wonderful things. OK, good. He's getting back on
2: track. So they were updating you, but they were updating you, telling you that he's doing well and on the road to recovery.
1: Yeah, they were using patient confidentiality, which in suicide, I'm sorry, you should not be, you know, you don't have to acknowledge uh, patient confidentiality when it comes to suicide. you're a physician or any medical team is allowed to say, sorry, we think you're vulnerable, like you say, we have to consult your family and get them involved. They used it. Like the the Chilwick General Hospital did more to assist them with this medical assistant dying than to keep them alive. And the reason I say that, when after two days after giving the antidepressants, and a day or two later, they transferred them from the psychiatric unit to the PATH unit. And, and, and I, I'm gonna. I don't have any proof, but I'm gonna say that he probably. I want medical assistance dying, because he was mad at everybody. And so they transferred and don't tell my parents or my parents don't tell my brothers or anything because they'll just try to convince me otherwise. Well, you think the hospital would want to tell us because we're the ones that maybe gonna be able to talk him out of it.
2: You think he might have said it in a kind of fit of rage, in, in a moment of madness, effectively, and then it's been moved upon by the hospital itself without proper consideration of how you could step in at that point
1: exactly we were there to. we were his support we're the ones that loved him we were the ones that had the history of his his health his well-being and everything like that we're the ones that knew everything it was i mean my parents did a wonderful job up to the time that they passed And we stepped in there, and like you were saying earlier, my brother would come down once a week, take him shopping, do all his banking needs. I always went out there a couple of times a year to visit him and make sure everything was intact. We family provided him with lots of funding. I mean, when he passed away, he had a quarter of a million dollars still in the bank. Like, he was still, he wasn't relying on the system at all. He was collecting CPP disability, but he wouldn't even collect his union pension and things like that. So. He was not—he was not a burden on the government for financial needs or anything. And 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 why I'm really disappointed and mad and I've lost all respect for any of this is the last couple of weeks he's in the hospital. He was only there for a month, by the way, since he was admitted and given made. The last two weeks they were treating him for nothing. They were giving him room room aboard. And I said, why you keep, why did you keep him there? Well, Alan didn't think he should go home because you guys would try to convince him otherwise to. Well, if that's what we did, we do, that, that'd be fine. I mean, you've already approved him for a medical assisted dying, release them.
2: So he'd been approved for the assisted dying. And then their suggestion was that he should stay in this kind of almost safe house yeah. to avoid him being convinced otherwise by his, his family. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, 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 and just because he says, well, I don't want them to know. That was, I mean, we didn't find out to the almost the very end. I, I mean how
2: how can the how can this patient confidentiality actually work when you've got a patient who is in such mental distress that they are considering suicide that surely would be the grounds under which to say that that person is perhaps not competent to be making those decisions if they are under such mental duress that they are considering taking their own life without a terminal illness or some other factor at play I mean the, for you this must have been utterly baffling when you when you heard that he was making improvements and then suddenly you find out that he's gone how did that actually take take me to that actual time you'd heard that he was doing well was how did you actually find out that he'd he'd been accepted to to take on the euthanasia
1: on a monday i got a call from his who's the fa- family doctor looking after him there he didn't really have a prescribed doctor cuz he didn't trust doctors at all and but the he, of course, the hospital signs a doctor. This doctor calls me and says, uh first, first thing they they ask, do you have um, um, a th- power of attorney over your brother?" That's what they asked me. That's what the doctor asked me. I said, "Oh, no, I don't." I mean, it's something we always encourage Alan to to live for a free will life. Um, and then I, the doctor informs me, "Well, Alan's been approved for medical a dying." And of course, I, I just break right down, I'm at work. And I break down and, uh, oh, want to see him. Want to see him right away. Well, we'll have to talk to him, see if he'll see anybody, because right now he has um, restricted any visitors. Well, the doctor comes back and says, yeah, Alan said he's willing to, to see. Him. So we drove out. We, we, we drove out from Edmonton to Chile, went to see him. It was later in the day, the nurse says, "Well, Alan don't want to visit today." He, he says, "Come back tomorrow morning." Tomorrow, tomorrow. So we come back, and we—this is the eve now, the day that he's to receive maid. and we find out there's nothing that we can do. That's what the doctor says. It's Alan's choice. You cannot do anything. So we're we're in a we're in a dilemma now. We don't know should we go see a lawyer and get a, a judge to stop this for a while to have it um, privately investigate and make sure that he's this is all good because we were, we were totally ignorant to the whole main process
2: but you've you've only got a matter of a matter of hours here i assume it's it's really coming down close to the wire and and also i suppose the other thing is that if you're being told that he's got this terminal situation there is no, you know you, you you must feel helpless
1: yeah felt really helpless and uh, so we come back the next morning to see him and I mean, I mean, looking at his medical chart, and there's nothing like his. All his vitals look really good. Like, so, I mean, there's it doesn't look like there's any heart problems, anything like that. So uh, we spent the whole day with him, and we had a really good visit. And he was, of course, doing everything himself. We walked around the corridor a few times, and uh, I thought we maybe, you know, we convince him otherwise. And I think we came really, really close to convince him not to do this. And there's a few things, like I said to him, like I said, Alan, you know, if dad was alive today, you wouldn't be doing this. And he looked at me and he did couldn't even talk because he, he knows that's the truth. Another thing I said to him, Alan, I'm contemplating retiring this year. And I says, possibly can move back to Chilliwack, you know, give you a little more support and a little more family close by. And he just looks at me and says, geez, I wish I would have known that. And of course, we say, you know that now, but with his mental uh, instability, uh, he can't make a decision that fast. right? It takes some, it takes some time to process information. He doesn't process it fast.
2: So do you think if you'd had that same conversation a week earlier before he was pushed to make a decision about the assisted dying, that he might have made a different one?
1: Most definitely. I mean, over his life, I mean, he did have, you know, I don't want to live. You know, he probably had suicide thoughts and things like that. I mean, I would take him for a drive and then come back. And he says, well, I thought you're going to maybe kill me and leave me out there. Or are you going to leave me home with all these knives and stuff like that? He would say stuff like that. I said, Alan, I trust you. I said, "I mean, if that's what you want to do, I says, I can't guard you uh, 24-7. I says, so these are your choices, not, you know, so.
2: horrible irony of this is if he was quite a paranoid person and didn't, didn't trust people in in positions of power. Then, what can this tell us about that situation? Um, it makes it makes you feel paranoid just to think of a group of people advising you on your right to take your own life and then dissuading you from speaking to your own family about it. That feels yeah. like you're stuck in a kind of nightmare. Yeah,
1: yeah, but most definitely. It's like like who's running the show here? Like especially you're, you're coming in, you're leading up to actually the pandemic, right? 2019. And look, we found out how important family is. And here's, here's the medical system and the government saying, well, it's, you know, even, even the, the made bills that the federal government passing and we're talking, su- we're talking assisted suicide. That's what it is. You're, you're making it easier for suicide people to have suicide. That's what you're doing.
0: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
3: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: But they won't do it. But you're now you're making it easy for them. And you're going to use patient. You're not putting anything in there to restrict patient confidentiality. Yet you want to pass made now for children under 18. You want to pass it for uh individuals with physical and mental um, disabilities. And you're not gonna put something like that in there. Like, And there's not even a criteria to say who's of a sound mind to apply for MAID. So why are you even writing bills? Why are you wasting taxpayers' money doing it? Why don't you just set up a walking clinic for it and then? Because that's, that's what's gonna happen because we, once the government opens the door, these physicians and medical teams are just gonna open it wider. So it, it shows it in my brother's case. None of that, would. he, he, he was uh, vulnerable with psychiatric u- issues and his natural foreseeable death wasn't there. So those are two of the main criteria for, for MAID. So if you're gonna abuse it then, what do you think is gonna happen down the road and you wind it so much more?
2: So forgive me for this, it's a horrible question to have to ask, but could you just t- talk me through what the actual process of getting the MAID, the medically assisted dying was? Um, in in Alan's case, how did that actually happen?
1: Well, he filled out his form to request medical to dying. On his form, he put hearing loss. So hearing loss, uh, and you're supposed to have a natural foreseeable death under Bill C14, which was the first made bill written in 2019, which he was to meet made requirements at that time. That's what he had on his made.
2: So I've got his I've got his made form here. And I can see, yes, what you're talking about, that he's got under medical diagnosis, relevant to requests for medical assistance in dying. He's he's put hearing loss there as the reason. Um, my understanding of the law in Canada was that it, it had to be a life-ending illness of some sort, terminal or severe enough to cause serious chance of death, for that to even be considered. How did this happen?
1: Well, this is, this is the whole problem. And, and, and every body that we go to request an investigation, they come back. Even the Fraser Valley um, Patient Quality Review Board, they came back and said, Alan didn't have to be dying. Yeah, he didn't have to be dying at that time, but it had to be foreseeable. They didn't give any diagnosis that he was um, diagnosed with uh, eventually heart failure or something. was gonna His kidneys were going to be shut down in a year or two. They gave you nothing. And then also we mentioned we didn't consider his uh, history of mental health. Well, psychiatric maid hasn't been approved. So, you know, you're just making up your own maid requirements as you go. And also um, patient confidentially is why you guys were told what you were. And that was a request by Alan. My brother and I have talked about this. We know if he was sent home within a month or two, he'd be right back on track just by us visiting him and taking him out to do something, he would have changed his thought.
2: On his made application here, I don't want to give away any of his personal details, but I can see where his patient signature for his request is required. There is an X next to his name, which is often used for somebody, a doctor or a nurse or an administrator, to show someone who is perhaps unable to work out how a form works, where they're supposed to sign. Um, It struck me as a worrying detail, um, if he's allowed to consent to his own death, if he needs to be shown where on the form to to sign. Do you you think he was able to consent?
1: Um, Not at that time, just because him applying for MAID, I would say was more out of anger and um, just uh like a moment in his life where he wasn't thinking clearly just because of all the negativity that happened around him leading up to that point and also being transferred to the hospital unwillingly so it's more of a a rebellion than anything he's just saying i'm taking charge of my own life i want made right nobody can tell me this is he wanted to be in charge
2: so alan is assisted in dying by the, the hospital in Chilliwack. And what is on his death certificate? What does it say that he died of?
1: Oh, gee. Uh, it went, uh, well, I think it was in right?
2: And so that's now a cause of death in Canada, that there is, there will be more and more people every year as this law becomes more liberalised who have this down on their death death certificate. They're
1: going to say, oh, suicide, suicide is way down, <laughs> you know? It's like. But it's just because they're all under MAID, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's...
2: So did you support made before this? So you said a bit before that you didn't have much awareness of it being legalised in Canada, but more generally in places like Belgium or the Netherlands, had you thought about assisted dying um, as an issue, a kind of moral issue? And, and what, what did you think about it before your experience with Alan?
1: I'm going to say I had none because I was not aware of it at all. And I was not even aware of other countries like Netherlands and things like that with it in Belgium. And um, it wasn't until af- after Alan received made that you start obtaining the the learning process of it all. And uh, I, I, even at this point, I'm probably okay with it. If you know somebody's got terminal ill cancer, I've seen patients with uh, cancer and how they deteriorate and diminish and um, their quality of life, it becomes next to nothing. I can understand um, utilization to uh, end your life maybe just before the very end, like within a six month period or whatever of, uh, of that suffering. But for anything else, I have a hard time because even with people with disabilities, I right away, I think at the, uh, para, uh, the disability Olympics, right? That uh, what if those, individuals were offered made at an earlier time in their life. They wouldn't achieve where they are there. And you can see the, the expressions on those athletes when they're, they're in those events. Like, I mean, they're living. They really are living. And if you don't give that opportunity, then how, how, how would they ever know? So if you're going to take their life away before they even have that opportunity, before they they're actually, you know, they have the knowledge and the, the uh information to to carry on or the strength or whatever it might be but you got to give them that opportunity and it's it's a proven fact that even people that attempt uh, suicide and fail they regret it I mean there's a lot of facts on that I mean of course we can't obtain too much facts on the people that do are successful but the people that don't you know not not many of them say that they would ever attempt it again
2: and it's not just a case of disability as well, is it? It's also about poverty. If you are someone who doesn't have the means, as Alan did, to get out of hospital and get into a safe and secure home with support from friends and family, you might feel that you are a burden on those around you if your healthcare is costing hundreds, thousands of dollars a day. You might feel that it's better for everyone, it's often the phrase used, if you just go. And I guess that that's a major ethical question here is how do we deal with that guilt that people feel um, who don't have those resources and might be causing a burden on their families and friends? How do we deal with that when it comes to things like assisted dying?
1: Yeah, I mean, as a taxpayer, to me, it's appalling that the, our government can say, OK, we want to put all these more dollars into Disability and mental health, and at the same time expanding MAID, To me, that's a, you can't please everybody. Never are going to. So to me, you should make up your mind. Put your money into, like you say, providing better uh, uh, living standards for some of the people, or providing the medical needs for for, for, for individuals. But then don't, don't don't spend millions and thousands of dollars on this, and then say, oh. Here's maid because, you know, it's, uh, it's an easier way out, you know. We don't have to f- provide any more future funding for you or anything here.
2: Were you able to be with Alan when he, when he passed away? Were you, were you there at the time or were you not allowed?
1: No, nope, we stayed there right to the very end and it was appalling You know, uh, the nurse that uh, approved his maid was also the nurse that gave him a, an didn't realize that because we didn't have all the information. have just learned that in the la- over the last year. And to me, that should be restricted right there. I mean, if you prove the person's made and now you're going to be the one that gives them the, the maid. I mean, because they get paid for doing that. I, I'm, you know. So, I mean, really, you're writing your own paycheck it's a tight group like that nobody really wants to do an investigation on this case and i'm pretty i'm pretty assured just because it's quite apparent that he didn't meet all the main requirements at that time now maybe going forward like next year or even now maybe maybe he would have met the requirements but he didn't meet him back in 2019.
2: but even if he did if we were in 2023 if we travelled in time and this had happened then, when MAID is due to be extended to those with mental health issues as their primary reason for ending their life, would it make it any better? Is it, is it ethically sound to be euthanising people for their mental health struggles? I mean, this, it's, it seems absolutely obvious that if you are in a dire mental state, then being offered the opportunity to end your life for that reason and that reason alone might be a very short-term fix and cause a lot of trouble down the line.
1: Yeah, I mean the the, the medical system gave us no support for, for being the survivors of this. They give you nothing. Just,
2: you weren't offered they, counseling or mental health support?
1: No, no absolutely nothing. And well, maybe even... they
2: thought they'd have a few more customers. I mean maybe that's just me being cynical but there's something about that that really frightens me.
1: Yeah and it is, it is scary and The one thing going forward, though, with Alan, they wouldn't need to uh, bring in a specialist. So you can't can't just approve somebody. And I think there's a uh, longer time limit as well. And hopefully they they do due diligence and and professional duties by consulting with everybody around them. Right now, they just took everything that Alan said as being truthful rather than talking to his neighbor who knew him or talking to us, get, getting the history. Like, what do you think of Ellen receiving me? Well, we would have said, well, he'll. if you send him home, he'll change his mind over time. This is, this is not the first time he's gone through this kind of thought pattern. So, but you got to give him the opportunity to change his mind. It takes him a while. He, he's, he's not somebody with the mental uh, capabilities of uh, rationalized thinking on a, a timely basis, right?
2: There's also the question of being institutionalised and feeling like you are stuck in the place you're in, which is often the testimony of people who go into hospital for a long time, is that they get stuck in a kind of loop and they can't think of a way out. And we all know when you feel really unwell and you go to hospital, often you feel more unwell before you get better, because the environment is not particularly healing, you might say. Um, And so there's a question there about whether he would have been better off for example, being brought home to you and your wife or, or to his other brother?
1: Yes, yes. In, in um, you know, 2008, he was uh, 51 years old, and that's when I found out he wasn't taking his medication anymore and my father had passed away. Well, my, my, this is quite important. In 2008, my mum called me and said, uh, Ellen didn't show up for dinner last night. So I said, okay, I'll go check on him. So I went, and ch- we were still living in that area at that time, by the way. So I went over to, to see him and his door was locked and so, wasn't opening it. So I called a locksmith. Locksmith came and opened up the door and we went in there and he was laying in his bed. And he says, I knew eventually somebody would come to see me. But anyways, took him to the hospital. He got his, you know, a um, little bit better on track and they um, released him in, our care. So he, I brought him home to live with us for a few months and he did really well, you know, really well. So it's just those kind of uh, patterns that he would go through in and out.
2: And did, did they give him an opportunity to change his mind in those, in those final hours and and minutes and even seconds? Was, was there a ripcord he could pull to say, actually, no, I I, I don't want to do this.
1: I would say uh, there's supposed to be, There's three shots that the the nurse gave him on his final moments. The first one, she released, and he's supposed to be able to communicate back if he wanted to change his mind. And he couldn't even talk at that time. So by the time they gave him the second shot, he was gone.
2: How long do they give between these shots? Do they wait? or?
1: Not very long at all. I was going to say seconds, less than a minute.
2: So if, I mean, I've heard stories of people jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge and realising 20 seconds after that they, they wish they hadn't jumped, and that comes to mind.
1: I believe that. It's like I said earlier with the suicide attempts, when they fail, they regret it. Um, fortunately, my brother now, we can't ask him that, you know, do you regret what you did? He doesn't get that opportunity. They, the the hospital took that away from him, you know, even just by sending him home they change his mind. They, they took away that opportunity.
2: Do you think he would have had a fulfilling life beyond this moment? Do you think that he could have done more and and, and enjoyed himself again? He, he wasn't a lost cause in the sense that he wasn't kind of on a downhill, spiral that he couldn't come back from?
1: You always have that hope, right? Um, even, even since 2008, when I think that was the, definitely had a, a, a slide there and that's about four years, well, less than four years after my father passed away. And my father was a big part of his life. Um, he was a course we ret- retired at that time and he checked on Ellen every day and bring stuff over for him, take him for rides, take him out to the, the Fraser river and things like that. Um, so that was a big loss for Alan. And uh, I don't know if he got, you know, the best he probably did after that was when he was living with us for that time being. Um, He did do really, really good again from 2017 to this, leading up to the point where he went to the hospital in 2019. Yeah, I mean, he had the money in the bank. He had enough support. Like, he could have made his life whatever he wanted to.
2: Are you a religious person, a spiritual person? Do you you believe that he's somewhere else now and with your father or is that not something that crosses your mind
1: well if he was with my father i think my father would be giving him a little bit of a tune-up you know because i mean you got to think of uh and this is what is appalling to to me and if i was ever successful i would make sure that this team had apologized to my mom and dad and the rest of the family just because of the efforts and the support that they'd given helen and we'd given Alan, that uh, for, for this medical team, just to tor- totally ignore that and cons- not consult with us when we were there the whole, his whole life, up to this last month, that you're gonna ignore uh, our so All your
2: love and, and your work was undone by this, in a yeah, way. Yeah,
1: exactly, I think it's really rude, and uh, just, it, it's appalling, it's appalling that, uh, they can they can abuse patient confidentially that bad, and uh, re- request his request for maid at that level, and not not even not even a psychologist calls. So, Alan, he's not thinking straight. You know, we you got to remember we weren't even aware of that he had applied for maid and been approved. They could have called us and just discussed his health, and we would have figured the same. Like they're you know just trying to get on top of it. Yeah, they didn't even. Do that.
2: Has your trust in the medical institution changed since, since this whole experience? Do you have doubts about the way the medical establishment in Canada is is working?
1: 100% so. I mean, I, I still have a lot of faith in a lot of the doctors out there. And, and I know the nurses have been working hard. I mean, you've seen it through the, the pandemic. But uh, yes, for, for, for to leave a, a family member in the hospital right now, yeah.
2: It's what happened to a lot of people during the pandemic. Was they were told not to see their family members in closed wards, and I know people personally who said goodbye to family members over Zoom or FaceTime or through a window. These are very strange times and depersonalized times. I think between the family unit and the medical institutions that we kind of trust our family with.
1: Mm-hmm. My um, Trish, for instance. Her sister just went through a, a major surgery, and when she was taking her to the hospital and things like that, she her, her sister would say, "Oh, Trish, you can go home now." Trish wouldn't leave for this very same reason. She's lost all her faith in, in the hospitalization and things like this, and, and it's, it's really tough because what we just seen this uh, result there. I think was it in California where they said to uh, that is um, unconstitutional for the physicians to be forced to provide this kind of service. And I don't know why that hasn't happened here in Canada. You go through all your medical training there to save people, and now you're gonna have a small body of people saying, you go to offer made. I, I would say if I was a doctor, I would say, no, I don't want offer made, and this institution's not gonna offer made. If the patient wants made, we'll have them transfer it to a facility that offers made, but no. You've got to stand
2: up. Gary, thank you so much for telling us Alan's story. Thank you, Flo. That was Gary Nichols, brother of Alan Nichols, who died by euthanasia in Canada in 2019. His story is really compelling, quite frightening, and certainly brings into sharp relief the ethical problems of assisted dying. Let us know what you think in the comments. We always want to hear from you. Thanks for watching. This was Unheard.